Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We are thankful for the children in this church. We're thankful for all those that work with our children. It's a blessing to have a, uh, a church full of, of families and children. And I'm thankful for you older people, too. <laughs> and that's a relative term. I laughed this past week when I came across some funny stories from Reader's Digest. They have a list of funniest excuses people make to not come to work. Okay, so some of you may be bosses or employers, and you've maybe heard these before. So listen to some of these weird excuses that people came up with for not going to work. And this first one may make you laugh. Okay, an employee couldn't come in because his llama wouldn't stop barfing. One man said, I Q-tipped my ears last night and went too far into my left ear. My alarm was on the left side of my head in, this head in the morning, and I didn't hear it until now. An employee got stuck in the blood pressure machine at the grocery store and couldn't get out. An employee claimed that his grandmother poisoned him with ham. Another employee said she was bitten by a duck. Another employee caught their uniform on fire by putting it in the microwave to dry. <laughs> this is tax season, and I'm sure Mickey, one of our elders who's an accountant, will appreciate this one. Charles O'Byrne was the top aide of former New York Governor David Patterson, and he quote-unquote neglected to pay his taxes for five years in a row. And when he came before the court, he claimed that he suffered from, listen to this, a medical condition called late filing syndrome. <laughs> he actually pleaded this in court. Now, the American Psychiatric Association told the New York Times that it doesn't recognize late filing syndrome as a psychiatric condition. So this man had to step down in disgrace in 2008. For So, so none of you claim you had late filing syndrome because you did not get your taxes in on time, okay? So, have you ever made an excuse that would be considered a lame excuse? You didn't want to go on a date, you were late for work, you wanted to get out of something, so you made a lame excuse, you didn't want to file your taxes. These are humorous stories that the Reader's Digest came up with of, of excuses that people make, but it, it does show us something about excuses. Because in our passage of Scripture today, Jesus is going to address the issue head-on of making lame excuses. So last week, we're still in this same passage of Scripture, the same context. Jesus is in the home of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And last week, he told a parable about humility. Don't sit in the top seat 
Don't have selfish ambition. Don't be assertive. Don't put yourself out there. Don't be ambitious. Instead, be humble. Think of others more important than yourself. And so Jesus is still in this house. He's still talking about banquets. He's still telling parables. And if you remember, the banquet is is a greater symbolism of the kingdom of God, the great banquet, the heavenly banquet. And so Jesus is going to continue addressing his audience in this home of this religious ruler. So let's continue reading. We're just going to pick up where we left off last week. So let's pick up in verse 12, Luke chapter 14, verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because you cannot, that they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who'd been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. And I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Here's the main point of this passage of Scripture. There is no good excuse for refusing to come to faith in Christ. There's no good excuse for refusing to come to faith in Christ. Now in the previous parable that we looked at last week, Jesus addressed those who were invited. When you're invited, be humble. Now Jesus addresses those who are the invite, the ones who invite, the host, the ones that put on a banquet. And when you think about parables, parables tell us a greater reality. And so in these parables, God is the host. And so here's the point that we see in verses 12 through 14. God graciously calls those who can't repay him. God calls those who can't repay him. God does not operate on a quid pro quo. I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. That's not how God operates. God is saying to these that invite people, don't invite people who 
are your friends. Now, it doesn't mean you never invite your friends over to your house, but basically he's saying, don't have this attitude where you say, I'm, I'm dare not going to invite the outcast, the poor, the crippled, the, the dregs of society, I'm not going to invite because I can't get anything out of it. They won't repay me. I won't look good in the community. I'm not going to invite those people because there's nothing in it for me to invite them. They're just going to be a nuisance. I'm going to have to pay, pay for everything. They're not going to pay me back. Uh, there's no point. And so God calls those who are not self-reliant and not prideful and cannot pay him back. Who does God call? The hopeless and the helpless. Now, notice four groups of people here that they are to invite. He says in verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Now, I think in the immediate context, Jesus is addressing people who were literally handicapped, literally physically blind, those that were literally poor. But I also want to remind you that this is a parable, and so it tells us spiritual realities. The Bible often talks about spiritual realities using these descriptions. God calls the poor, the poor in spirit those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who have nothing to, to, to repay God with, those who understand their guilt, those who understand their sin, those who know they are hell-bound without Christ, those that know that they're helpless. How did Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit means you have an overwhelming sense of your nothingness without Christ. Those are the people that God calls, the poor in spirit. God calls the crippled. Now again, literally, I think Jesus is talking about the disabled here, but think about spiritually. You cannot do anything spiritually to earn your salvation, to walk toward God, to earn merit with God. You can't do anything to earn God's favor by spiritual activity. God calls the lame. Now this is an interesting little interesting side note here. When you think about the lame, there's an interesting passage in the Old Testament. I don't know if you remember when Elijah, the prophet, has a showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. These pagan prophets come in and, and Elijah says, let's go to Mount Carmel and you, you have your gods call down fire from heaven and have them burn the cattle below and then I'll have my God, the true God, call down fire from heaven. And so there's this showdown. But right before that happens... Elijah says something very interesting about the people of Israel, and he uses a very interesting term. In 1 Kings 18, 20-21, so Ahab, that's the king, Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah, that's the prophet, came near to all the people, and this is what Elijah said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, the false god, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah says, how long are you going to be limping between opinions? Literally in the Hebrew, limping, it means wobbling. It means to walk like with a crutch. And metaphorically, what, what Elijah is saying is, how long are you going to be wavering, Israel? Make a decision, either, either be on God's side or be on Baal's side, but you can't be, be, be waffling back and forth. 
It's a symbolic way of saying they're wobbling, they're wavering in their commitment to the Lord. And so here's the, here's the wonderful thing about how, how God calls us. God calls those who are a little bit confused. God calls those that may not have all the answers. God calls those that may look at the claims of Christianity and say, you know what, I don't know if, what this is all about. I, I'm weighing the options. And God says, listen, I'm calling you to myself because I'm the true God. God calls those who don't have it all figured out, who may be a little wobbly or wavering in their understanding. God calls the blind. Those who are spiritually blinded by Satan and cannot see the glories of the cross. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Here's what you see in this parable. You see the heart of God for lost people. You see the heart of our Heavenly Father for those that cannot repay Him. Those that are helpless, hopeless, and hell-bound that deserve nothing but His wrath, but He calls them because of His great love. And He doesn't expect to be repaid. We started out the service with Romans chapter 11. Let me read it again. Romans 11, 34-36, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who's been his counselor? Who's given him a gift that he might be repaid? Answer, nobody. Nobody can give a gift to repay God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now here's a man in verse 15 that thinks he's got it all figured out. So Jesus has just talked about inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And then in verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who'll eat bread in the kingdom of God. This Jewish man makes a bold presumption. Hey, I'm going to automatically be in the kingdom. I'll be in the kingdom because I'm ethnically a Jew, but there's nothing here about personal faith in the Messiah. You go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 25, and it does prophesy about a great feast. It does prophesy about how God will wipe away every eye, and wipe away every tears from your eyes. So there is, in the Old Testament, a prophecy about this heavenly feast. And so these Old Testament Jewish men would have understood this. But here's the point. They thought they were automatically going to be at the feast. They automatically thought they were going to be in just because they were Jewish. You don't get in without personal faith in the Messiah, the King of the Jews. So this man's making a bold presumption. And let me just say this. Don't presume you're going to heaven just because you've grown up going to church. Don't presume you're going to heaven just because you grew up in a Christian home. Don't presume you're going to heaven just because you're spiritual. Don't presume anything unless you have personal faith with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the Messiah. And so Jesus proceeds to tell another parable. And so we're going to examine for the rest of our time this morning this parable. And it's, it's broken up in five distinct parts. So let's look at this parable that he tells. It starts in verse 16. So the first thing we see is the invitation. The invitation. Verse 16. He said to him, a man once gave, and again, this is a parable, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servants 
to say to those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. God's the gracious host of the heavenly banquet. He's made all the preparations. He sent Jesus to die on the cross and rise again. God has done everything necessary for your salvation, and now he says, come. Now, in that ancient culture, they didn't have text and emails like we do today. So a host would invite his guests. And then like a day or two before, he'd send his servants out and say, okay, now's the time. It's really ready. I've invited you months before, but I'm going to remind you. Nowadays, you kind of get like a text reminder, or you get an email, or you get that little postcard. Back then, they would send the servants. And so the servants would go out, and they would say, listen, the master invited you many, many weeks ago, but everything's ready. Now's the time to come. It's time to show up. Everything's ready. The house is full. The, the fattened calves have been prepared. Everything's ready. There's going to be great wine. There's going to be great food. Everything's ready. Come. And so it was the height of rudeness to not come when the master made the preparations. He invited you. You said, yes, I'm coming. And the time came for you to come, and then for you not to show up would be rude, rude, rude. So let's look at the second thing we see in this parable. We see the lame excuses. We do see lame excuses in verses 18 through 20. But they all began to make excuses. So three guys make three excuses. Here's the first guy. The first guy said, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. And that's pretty stupid if you ask me. Why would you buy a field and not look at it before you bought it? It would be like buying a home off a virtual tour that you saw on the real estate website, but you never walked into the house. I bought this house, but I need to go see it. I bought this field, but I need to go see it. The point is the field's going to be there tomorrow. Don't put it off. The field's going to be there tomorrow. If you bought it, it's going to be there tomorrow. Okay, the second guy. I bought five yoke of oxen, and I've got to go inspect them. Now, let me ask you ranchers. Do you go and buy five oxen without going to the sale barn and seeing what they look like? Same thing. Why would you buy oxen and not go inspect them? They'll be there tomorrow. Third guy. I got married. I can't come. Now, man, think about this. There's no law in ancient Israel preventing you from going to a big party. Wouldn't it be a wise thing, husbands, to bring your wife along to a party right after you got married? We can dance the night away. We can have free food. This could be our honeymoon kind of thing. Wouldn't that be a good thing, husbands? I got married. I can't come. So these are lame excuses. But let's ask the question. What do these three excuses represent? Okay, the field. The field represents your material possessions or your property, the things that you own. The oxen represents your job, your income, your livelihood. If you're back then a farmer, you can't farm without an ox. And then number three, marriage obviously represents your spouse and family. So let's ask the question, are these three things bad in and of themselves? Obviously not. There's nothing inherently wrong with owning property. There's nothing wrong with having a job. There's nothing wrong with having a wife and kids. Those are good things. Those are good, honorable things. But what's the problem? The problem is when these good and necessary things become 
idols and you use them as excuses to elevate them above Jesus. When you say, my property is more important than Jesus, my job is more important than Jesus, my family is more important than Jesus. Now, are those things important? Yes. And Jesus hits to the heart of the three most important things in our lives, what we own, what we do, and our family. And he says, those should not be lame excuses to prevent you from coming to my banquet. I'm inviting you to the banquet. It reminds me of the parable of the soils that we looked at many months ago. The third soil in Luke 8, 14. As for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature cares of life. You see, these three men were thinking of temporary, material, earthly things. Not bad things, guys. This is not sinful. These aren't sinful things. These are good things, which makes it very difficult, very confusing when, when Jesus addresses good things in our life. It's not like these men were going and making excuses like, I got to go sleep with the prostitute. I can't come. I need to go down the street and deal drugs. I can't. These, these, they're not making excuses for bad things, sinful things. They're saying, listen, I've got property I've got to take care of. I've got a wife and kids I've got to take care of. I've got my job I've got to take care of. They're making excuses for not coming to Christ. They refused to come to the banquet. They spurned the grace and provision of the Master. R.C. Sproul said this, Every bone in our bodies... Every fiber of our being screams that the significance of human life far transcends the daily activities in which we're engaged. But for the most part, we're mindless, thoughtless about eternal matters. These men weren't thinking about eternal matters. Good things, necessary things, but they weren't the most important thing. The most important thing is when the master invites you to himself to come eat at his home and the master's Jesus, you don't make any excuses. You come because the master is inviting you. So the third thing we see here is we see God's wider invitation. Obviously, the owner of the, of the, of the house got mad. Verse 21, the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry. You would be angry back in that culture if you made all the preparations and people made lame excuses not to come. And so he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Okay, if these guys are going to make lame excuses and they're going to get caught up in worldly things, if they're so self-sufficient, if they don't see their need, if, if they think they've got it all together, if they've rejected their Messiah, let's go out and invite people that understand their need. It reminds us of what Mickey read earlier of Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus addresses the lukewarm church in Laodicea. What does he say to them in Revelation 3.17? For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, the, the reason these guests made lame excuses is because they thought they had it all together. I don't need to go to the banquet. I'm all good. I've got my oxen, I've got my family, I've got, I got everything I need. I don't need Jesus. I'm self-sufficient. I've got it all together. 
Here's the tragic reality. Hell will be filled with those that are flagrant, immoral sinners who spurned God's grace and did wicked things. But hell will also be filled with religious, pious, polite people who made excuses for not coming to Jesus because they had their things that they wanted to hold on to. Hell will be filled with both. They're not outright immoral wretches, but good people who maybe worked hard at their jobs, loved their families, did great things in the community, but here's the problem. They didn't accept the invitation to come. They didn't trust Jesus as their Savior. They did not place their faith in the Messiah. And again, we see God's heart for those that can't pay him back. Who does the master tell the servant to go invite? Go out into the streets and go find the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Again, those that are not, that, that are not able to repay you. Those that are, that are hopeless, that are helpless. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Those that can't repay. Go find them and bring them in. Okay, fourth, the fourth aspect of this parable, we see the need to compel them to come. Look at verse 22. The servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, but there's still room. Now think about this. The master of the house could have said, You know what? These guys spurned me. We're done with this banquet. I'm done. I'm not, I'm not going to throw a banquet anymore. We're done. But notice what he says, no, I want my house full. I've made the preparations. I've fattened the calves. I've got everything ready. I want my house full. And so the servants go out and they come back and said, well, we've done what you've asked us, but there's still more room. But notice what he says. Verse 23, the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled one thing you cannot miss is the wording in verse 15 blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God let me just ask you a very simple question who is the bread of life Jesus. In John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread of life that these men are rejecting. And he's the host of the great wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of the age. In Revelation 19, 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The whole point of this parable is that these people made lame excuses and refused to come to Jesus himself as the source of life, as the bread of life. And God says, listen, I've offered my son as the bread of life. And I want my house full. 
And if you're going to refuse the invitation, I'm going to go out to people that understand their need. Now, why do the servants have to go out and compel them to come? This doesn't mean that they're forcing them to come against their will. Think about it for a moment. You have no idea who this host is, and this servant comes up to you and says, Hey, my host has a, has a party, and you're invited. Come on. I don't know who the guy is. It doesn't matter. Come on. Will, will, will he let me in? doesn't matter. Come on. You've been invited. It's going to take a little bit of convincing. It's going to take a little bit of persuasion to tell these people, it's okay for you to come to the host family. I know you don't know the host. I know you didn't get an invitation, but I'm here to tell you the house is ready for you. He wants it full, so come. I'm going to compel you to come. So what does it mean to compel people to come to faith in Christ? Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you. The implore means to plead or beg with urgency. To have a broken heart for unsaved people and to urge them to come to faith in Christ with an urgency. Now, this does not mean that we're rude, that we're overbearing, that we're forceful, that we get all crazy, but it does mean that we do some things to plead, to implore to compel our unsaved friends and family to come to faith in Christ. Now, I was reading a sermon this week from Spurgeon called Compel Them to Come from this passage of Scripture. And so some of these thoughts come from my meditations upon Spurgeon's sermon. But what does it mean to invite or to urge or to compel someone to come to faith in Christ? What does it mean? Well, let me just address a few things this morning. We invite with sincerity. We invite people to come with, with real sincerity. I invite you to come to Jesus. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be like, like wool. With all sincerity, can I just invite you to come to Christ? Can I, can I tell you what Jesus has done on the cross to save you from your sins? Can I, can I just reason with you? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, this is from Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burdens light. Jesus says, come to me. John 7, 37 through 38, on the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. These are the words of our Savior to people that he was talking to. And he stands up and he says, Come to me. Come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me and I'll give you drink. Come to me, I'm the bread of life. Come to me if you're weary laden and I will take my yoke upon you. So we do the same. We invite with all sincerity sinners to come to Jesus. We look them in the eye and say, would you come to Christ? Please come to Christ. 
we also exhort with tears. We exhort with tears. Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus. And upon his departure in Ephesus, he calls the elders of the church together and he gives kind of a final sermon, a farewell address. And listen to what he says in Acts 20, 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. To admonish with tears. To admonish means to warn of the dangers. To exhort, to admonish, to encourage. You tell someone with tears in your eyes, if you don't trust in Christ, here's the consequences. I beg you, I plead with you, please come to Christ. With tears in my eyes, I urge you to come. We also command with conviction. Now this may sound a little different to you. We invite we encourage, but as a pastor, I can stand up on a Sunday morning behind this pulpit, not because I have any authority, but because I'm an ambassador of Christ and He's the one that has authority, and I can command you to repent and believe. It's your obligation. It's your duty. I'm an ambassador of the King, and I'm coming with the King's order saying, it is imperative for you to repent and believe, and for you not to do that is an act of defiance. Acts 17, 30-31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. God commands repentance, because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He's appointed, and of this He's given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. We can be like Paul and say, it's your, it's, it's your urgent obligation right now to repent. Why? Because there's a day of judgment coming. So I'm commanding you with conviction to come to Christ. So we invite. We urge with tears. We command with conviction. But sometimes we have to threaten with warnings. And this may sound harsh, but there are times when you need to get in someone's face and you need to, to threaten them with the warnings of hell. Listen to John the Baptist warn people about hell. Luke three seventeen through 18 His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. He preached about hell with many exhortations. Matthew 3, 7. When, you, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's a wrath to come. You need to flee from it. And then Jude has this very interesting passage, Jude 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, having even, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Jude tells us to snatch someone from the fire. You picture it in your mind? It's like someone's on the precipice of hell and they're messing around and you don't want them to fall in so you forcefully grab them back. I've done this very rarely in my ministry, but I'll tell you one time I did. It was a good Friday about five or six years ago 
No, it wasn't Good Friday. It was uh, Reformation Sunday. And there was a cult that was present in our town. They were a cult. I don't think they're still around here, but they would accost people at the gas station. They'd accost people at Pioneer Park, and they would go door to door. And we had known about this cult. And so the pastor group that I pray with every Wednesday, we were praying against this cult, against them. So they showed up at my door. I'm glad you showed up. I did not tell them I was a pastor. And they started, like, going all heretical on me. And I said, let me just stop you right now. We've been praying against you. And he goes, oh, I'm glad you're praying for me. I said, no, you didn't hear me. We've been praying against you, that you would fail miserably, and that every house you go down the street to, they would shut the door in your face and not hear a word you said, because you're tying a millstone around their neck, and you're preaching a false gospel about how Jesus is, and you're preaching a false gospel about who God is, and so not only are you damned to hell, but every person you talk to, you're damning to hell, so I hope you fail miserably. I said that to them, and I think they scratched me off the never come back to that house again. Now, I threaten them with warnings. I'm not saying you always have to do that. But there may come some times where you have to get in someone's face and say, listen, I've got to warn you with threats. So you weep. You beg. You invite. You pray. And you compel. But there's one thing we're totally inadequate to do. And that is change the heart. So what do you have to finally do? And we trust in the sovereign spirit. After you've done all you can do, you plead, you cry, you pray, you warn, you invite, you persuade, you answer questions, you love. After you've done all that, you're powerless to bring about salvation. You've got to trust in the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can truly compel the person to come. Spurgeon said this in that sermon that I was reading this week. He says, we can appeal to the Spirit. I've preached the gospel. I've preached it earnestly. I cannot compel you, but the Spirit of God who has the keys to your heart, He can compel. Now I throw it into my Master's hands. After you've done everything you can do, you throw it in the Master's hands. And you trust in the Spirit to do the work of of bringing them to faith in Christ. John 3, 7-8, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. The Spirit's got to do that work of blowing into their life and giving them new birth. You can't do that. Ephesians 2, 4-5, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. You can't make dead people come alive. Only God can do that. God makes them come alive. Ezekiel 36, 26-27, I will give you a new heart. This is God speaking. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Only God can do that heart transplant. So what does it mean to implore or compel them to come? You invite. You beg. You plead. You pray. With tears. With warnings. With urgency. With heartfelt compassion. 
And then you've got to sit back and trust the Holy Spirit to do only what the Holy Spirit can do. Take out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And if the Holy Spirit so happens to do that on your watch, you praise the Lord that you were part of something miraculous. All you did was pray and share. The Holy Spirit was the one that caused the new birth. Now, we get to the final aspect of the parable. And when I say about parables, this is important for interpreting parables. Usually what comes at the end is the most important. The punchline or the final statement at the end is usually the, the, the point that Jesus is driving home. And we see the dire warning. So the, the fifth thing we see in this parable, I said it was broken up in five parts. Verse 24, For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Do you notice the wording there? Jesus makes it personal. He doesn't say it won't taste the master's banquet or won't taste the banquet. He says, won't taste my banquet. Whoa, Jesus. You mean you're the master of the banquet? Yes. It's his banquet. He's the master. He's the bread of life. He's the king of kings. So these men who refuse to come to Jesus will not have access to that final banquet. You only have yourself to blame if you refuse to come to faith in Christ. He's done everything necessary for your salvation. He's made the house ready. He wants it full. Don't make excuses. Trust Him immediately. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this, Behold, now is the favorable time Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now. Today. So let me ask you a question. Have you accepted the invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven? Will you be seated at the table next to the true king, who is the bread of life himself. Will you be at that table? Will you taste his banquets? Will you be there? There is no good excuse for refusing to come to faith in Christ. Listen to the words of our Savior. Come to the banquet. Come to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never come, and maybe you've been in this church your whole life. Or maybe it's your first time here this morning. Let me urge and plead and beg with you to come. Don't make any excuses. Don't walk out that door. Don't say, I'm going to put it off. Today's the day of salvation. Come to the banquet. And when you come, you'll find that Jesus has made all the preparations. And he's welcomed you into his family. And you'll be with him forever you got to come. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's just spend a few moments in prayer. I guess one of the things that amazes me is that you even invited us in the first place. And, and Lord, the word that's used here to invite is actually the word call. You call us. So thank you for calling us to salvation. 
Lord, my prayers, if there's anybody in this room today that has not said yes to the call, that today would be their day of salvation. They would stop making lame excuse after lame excuse. But they would see their desperate need for a Savior. They would see Jesus as the bread of life, as the only source of true satisfaction. And they would come in faith for the very first time to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, would you do the compelling? Would you reach deep into hearts and do the work that none of us can do? Would you take out hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh? Would you make alive those that are dead in their sins? Holy Spirit, would you blow like the wind into dead, dry bones and bring life? Because, Lord, I don't want anybody to leave this place without knowing that they're saved. So, Lord, would people nail it down this morning? For those of us that have come to you in faith, Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the bread of life. You do sustain us. You do fill us. You satisfy us. You, you quench our thirst. You take our heavy load upon yourself. And we look forward to that great day when we will be in your presence at the ultimate banquet. And as that man said, blessed is he who eats the bread at the banquet. That Lord, it is a blessing. We just want to make sure that we're there because we've trusted in you. So thank you, Jesus, for these parables. Thank you for these teachings. Help us to evaluate ourselves in light of what we've heard this morning. And let us leave this place with our eyes fixed upon you, Jesus, as the author and finisher of our faith. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. We honor you. And it's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen.